This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Friday. Mm-hmm. Daphne, how are you? I'm tired. Yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like GI is difficult because it's one of the it's one of the few areas of neonatology where where we're we're more often than not needing the help of our consultants. Mm-hmm. Right? Like That's all these questions. Point. It's like a lot of the stuff you're like, oh, I'll fix this myself. Like I'll order the med, That's I'll right. do this, I'll do that. But here it's like you either need a surgeon or you need some some other person who's specialized a bit more than you to uh, help you along the way. But anyway, all right, we're going to do a bit some, some questions today. Are you ready? I think so. Gastroenterology question 14. Which of the following statements about neonatal protein digestion is most accurate? Ooh, I'm so happy this is for you. Oh, no. <laughs> Amino acid transport capacity is not developed until six months of age. Chemotrypsin and trypsin are present in duodenal fluid and decreased in both preterm and full-term infants. Choice C, decreased secretory IgA levels, increase intestinal uptake of intact protein in neonates compared to adults. Choice D, gastric pH is decreased in neonates compared to adults as a result of increased HCL secretion, hydrochloric acid secretion. Choice E, neonates have Decreased absorption of nitrogen compared to adults. Good luck, buddy. (laughs) Okay, in general, I'm just walking myself through this. Okay. (laughs) Neonates have lower things than the adults do, like the lower function. Oh, but be be careful. Be careful. I know. I I know. So... So that's when it's really helpful is to remember which things are not, that's where that's not the case, right? Where it's the exception and not the rule. Oh, that's a good, that's a good Um, So I like to remember those things. And I don't recall, but, but amino acid might be one of those things because you need the amino acid transport for like all of the basic life functions. So I don't. I think that's I think that's wrong. I think your amino acid transport uh I don't think it takes that long. Um and we're looking for the accurate statement. Chymotrypsin and trypsin are present in duodenal fluid. That's definitely true. And is it decreased in the neonate? Probably, cuz most things are. And then luckily, they wrote the these answers. So decreased IgA levels Increase intestinal uptake of intact protein in neonates compared to adults. And I feel like that's just a false statement. <laughs> My sense is that you'd want increased IgA levels to increase uptake of, of protein. 
So I don't know. I think that's wrong. And then D is wrong because that's also just a false statement. Gastric pH is decreased in neonates as a result of increased HDL secretion. So yeah, so you're saying that that beyond whether it is... What, correct, but, right. Because gastric pH is decreased in neonates, you may say like, yes, but not because there's more acidity. Because that's what they're saying right at the sec- in the second arm of the sentence. They're saying because of increased acid secretion, which is like, no, because then if there was increased acid secretion, their pH would be lower. It does say that. Gastric pH is decreased in neonates as a result of increased HCL secretion. Sorry. So that's just plain wrong. Plain wrong. Fine. Okay. I understand what you mean then. Well, I just think they don't do increased HCL secretion. Anyways. I may have confused everybody. Sorry. I think so. The P, the P, that would have been a good way to write the question, but increased HCL secretion, more acid, you would have a lower pH. Mm-hmm. So that would have been a good way, another way to write the question, the, what, what you said. And neonates have decreased absorption. Thank you for absorption. making me feel better for just fucking up the whole question right there. <laughs> I, had a, I had a professor in medical school who would say, that is the right answer to a different question. <laughs> um, and then neonates have decreased absorption of nitrogen compared to adults. I, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I think that I know that chemotrypsin and trypsin are present in duodenal fluids. So I'm not sure about, I, I don't know about the rest of the answer choices. Okay. You are correct. The <laughs> correct answer was chemotrypsin and uh, trypsin are really present in the duodenal fluid and decreased in both preterm and full-term infants. All right. Tell us about the other answer choice. All right. So in general, protein digestion in neonates is adequate because of normal nitrogen absorption and increased intestinal uptake of intact protein compared with adults. So far, so good? Yes. This um, increased uptake is a result of increased secretory IgA levels and increased mucosal permeability. So as you mentioned, one of the choices was that it's, they mentioned in choice, uh, so they mentioned that amino acid transport capacity is not developed until six months of age. So that's something that we just addressed, right? Um, saying that the uh, intestinal uptake of intact protein is, uh, is increased compared to adults. Then we have choice C said decreased secretory IgA levels, increased intestinal uptake of intact protein, when in truth, it was the increased secretory IgA levels uh, mm. and the increased mucosal permeability. Then it talks about gastric pH, as we mentioned, that gastric pH is uh, increased in neonates, so it's less acidic. Uh, because they have decreased HCL secretion. And then we have dipeptidase in the mucosa and amino acid transport capacity are both well-developed early in life. Chemotrypsin mm-hmm. and trypsin are present in the duodenal fluid. And while amounts are decreased in infants, these compounds remain important for protein digestion in neonates. That was a tough one. That was a tough one. Okay. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Question 15. 
A one-day-old full-term neonate presents with bilious emesis and a distended abdomen. It's just so much easier than what you just went through. Thank yeah. you, John. Well, let's see. He had a water-soluble contrast enema that shows a transition zone in the distal portion of the sigmoid colon with marked dilatation of the descending and the transverse colon. Of the following, the complication that is most likely to occur in this infant is A, acute bacterial enterocolitis, B, malrotation, C, necrotizing enterocolitis, D, spontaneous intestinal perforation, or E, volvulus. Okay. Is there, it, it actually is not as straightforward as you no, it's easy. made it seem. <laughs> okay. So you have... Um... Hold on, let me see. Mm. Bilious emesis. You were so sure. A no, second ago. no, that's okay. It's it sounds it's Hirschsprung's, right? We're dealing with Hirschsprung's um, yeah. because we have. But you know, you didn't really need to know the diagnosis, I think, to answer this question. No, no. Yeah. But then, um, because of Hirschsprung, we said that one of the b biggest complications that they could have is enterocolitis. So. Um, I'm going to say A, acute bacterial enterocolitis. That's correct. So, and you were right. The clinical presentation and the contrast enema findings of the infant are consistent with Hirschsprung's disease, which as a reminder is the congenital intestinal aganglionosis. They lack the ganglion cells, which occurs in one in 5,000 births. It's pretty common. Mm -hmm. A contrast enema radiograph in affected patients typically reveals a transition zone in the distal portion of the sigmoid colon with a subsequent marked dilatation of the proximal descending and transverse colon. Hirschsprung disease can be complicated by acute bacterial enterocolitis, which is associated with a mortality rate of 25% to 30%. Affected patients may present with vomiting, bloody stools, ulceration of the intestinal mucosa, necrosis of the bowel wall, and or sepsis. Um, the other potential complications listed as options are not usually associated with Hirschsprung's disease. Though neck has a similar presentation. Necrotizing enterocolitis typically, but not always, occurs in premature infants, and the clinical findings include abdominal distension, feeding intolerance, abdominal wall erythema, and systemic instability. But affected infants tend to have the uh, hallmarks of pneumatosis intestinalis, portal venous air, and or intestinal perforation visible on radiographs. Infants with spontaneous intestinal perforation can present with abdominal distension and pneumoperitoneum. Volvulus is a complication associated with malrotation that can lead to intestinal ischemia. Phew. Okay, Daphna, are you ready for the next one? I guess so. You, question 16. You're called to see a male infant with a prenatal diagnosis of gastroschisis who's become tachypnic in the last 30 minutes. Mm. The baby was born five hours ago after an elective cesarean section at 39 weeks gestation with a birth weight of 3.5 kilograms. Can you hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Abgar scores were 9 and 9 at 1 and 5 minutes, respectively. The mother's pregnancy, general health, delivery course are unremarkable. Mm -hmm. Besides the gastroschisis, the neonate had a normal physical exam with an initial respiratory rate of 35 to 45 breaths per minute. No increased work of breathing. Peripheral IV was inserted late at three hours of life mm. due to some difficulty in placement. And IV fluids were ordered at 60 ml per kilo per day and are awaited. Mm. 
the exposed bowel was examined and found intact and viable and left wrapped in saline soaked gauze. Mm-hmm. At five hours of life, the baby is sleeping, does not awaken during your exam. His heart rate is 180. The blood pressure, uh, the mean blood pressure is 40 millimeters of mercury, and the respiratory rate is now 60 to 70 breaths per minute. Mm-hmm. He is not in respiratory distress and has an oxygen saturation of 100% in room air. His tone, however, is decreased. His glucose is 68. Uh, no G tube is placed uh, and has drained 30 ml of bile stained fluid. <laughs> but the team is on it. They sent a CBC. Blood culture, and they've ordered a chest X-ray and antibiotics. Mm-hmm. What should be the initial management of this infant? Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Choice A. Oh, you didn't <laughs> tell me the choice. I was ready. You're ready to roll. You're like, let's go. All right. Choice A. Give a bolus of 10 ml per kilo of normal saline and start maintenance fluid. Choice B. Give a glucose bolus of two mg per kilo. Stat. Choice C. Replace the orogastric tube. Obviously. <clears throat> choice d take him to the or immediately to explore new onset gut ischemia and choice e transluminate his chest to look for a pneumothorax okay so the first thing i think <laughs> is like this this kid is uh fluid down right we got we got way behind uh the kids um tachycardic um the kid i mean all of the it just looks like delayed fluid administration and multiplied by fluid loss and the evaporative concerns because of the exposed and and there's a mistake there also in the admission orders by the way in the admission orders where what (laughs) so what, like they ordered oh, IV. IV fluids, right? The IV fluids are too low for this kid, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because you didn't get him anyways. So yeah, the kid probably would have ended up like this even if the IV had been started on time and the fluids were hot. So yes, many people are. are there, there are lots of uh, holes in this Swiss cheese, as they mm-hmm. say. Um, so then you're like, but why is the kid to Kipnik, right? So there could be lots of problems here. The kid could have something we don't know about. Uh, The kid could just have respiratory distress. Um, Regardless, regardless, the answer is probably A, we should uh, fluid resuscitate this baby. But when I think back, the kid's probably to Kipnik for the acidosis that we had caused. Mm -hmm. So you're going to give him a bolus. I'm going to give him a bolus. It's regardless. so funny that we started the week by me saying that giving a bolus is it's never the right answer. <laughs> it's rarely the right answer. And this is probably one of the cases also where giving a bolus is the right answer. So yes, that is the correct answer. Infants with gastroschisis can have uh, massive evaporative third space fluid losses with their exposed intestines, despite you putting as many moist barriers as you want. Mm -hmm. Coupled with fluid loss due to gastric decompression, babies with gastroschisis can become dehydrated quickly. In the absence of retraction or hypoxia, the tachypnea of the infant in this vignette is probably secondary to rapid dehydration and acidosis and is likely to respond to a normal saline bolus with immediate initiation of maintenance IV fluids. Newborns with gastroschisis initially may require up to double the usual maintenance fluid volume, approximately 120 ml per kilo per day in term infants. 
the blood glucose of this infant in the vignette is normal for a newborn and additional glucose administration is really not needed. A blocked orogastric tube can cause distress and tachypnea in an infant due to bowel dilation. But in this case, the orogastric tube seems to be functioning well, so there's really no reason to replace it. And the recent exam of the infant's bowel was satisfactory. So, I mean, yeah, unless they give you much more information about how the bowel looks, it's really, right. uh, yeah. Uh, a volvulus here is less likely. And uh, the initial management, regardless, even if you think the bowel is compromised, the initial right. management should still be fluid What is the next right step? Yeah. yeah. Uh, gastroschisis is usually an isolated defect. We talked a lot about it th uh, this week. So that's really the end of the, of the question and the answer. Which should we do one more for the road? Let's go. One more. I'll okay. ask you. I'll ask you. No, I'll ask you. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is not going to be a fun one for you. <laughs> there, there you go. You wanted to squeeze one more in. Okay. You just told the people they only had to do one question a day. So I know. I'm just we're, saying. But you said we're overachievers. So. <laughs> okay. Question 17. No, I'm not going to do that question. I'm going to, we're, we're, the, it's the end of the week. It's not fair. I'm going to do question 18. We'll go okay. back to 17. A six week old male infant born at 39 weeks gestation presents to the emergency room with non bilious vomiting and dehydration. An abdominal ultrasound reveals pyloric stenosis. Ooh. Mm. Which of the following statements about pyloric stenosis is false? Pyloric stenosis is more common in males than in females. B, the classic metabolic derangement associated with pyloric stenosis is hypochloremic, hyperkalemic metabolic acidosis. C, the recurrence risk of pyloric stenosis for a family with one child who has pyloric stenosis is 3%. D, the risk of having a child with pyloric stenosis is greater if the mother has a prior history of pyloric stenosis instead of the father having a prior history of pyloric stenosis. And E, pyloric stenosis has been associated with blood types O and B. You are looking for the false statement. It's funny because I've had patients this mm. week with family history of pyloric mm. stenosis. So <laughs> I know I read your note. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, the classic metabolic derangement is hypo-hypo, not hypo-hyper, hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic acidosis. Is it acidosis? That's my answer. Because you're losing all of the gastric secretions, the HCL. Okay. Very good. So you're saying that that the the metabolic, the electrolyte derangement, that's that was the wrong answer. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about pyloric stenosis. The incidence is approximately one per 3,000 births, also pretty common. It is greater in males than in females and particularly in firstborn males. So they love to ask these genetic type questions um, about pyloric stenosis. And it is really interesting about the family history. So the recurrence risk of pyloric stenosis for a family with one child who has pyloric stenosis is 3% for subsequent children, but it differs by sex. It's 4% of male, it's 2.4% of female. That's not so different, but the sex predisposition uh, becomes more interesting. The risk of having a child with pyloric stenosis if the mother has a history of pyloric stenosis is 19% for a son 
and 7% for a daughter. The risk of having a child with pyloric stenosis with a paternal history of pyloric stenosis is 5.5% for a son and 2.4% for a daughter. So to recap, the risk in the subsequent uh, child is 3% if you have an index child. But the risk is highest if you had a mother who has a history of pyloric stenosis and they have a son. That risk is almost 20%. The lowest risk, but there's still a risk, is if you have a paternal history of pyloric stenosis, um, it's 2.4% uh, for a daughter. And pyloric stenosis has been associated with blood types O and B, and the classic metabolic derangement associated with pyloric stenosis is hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis. Alkalosis. I think I said acidosis alkalosis. earlier. Alkalosis. It's alkalosis. And it's always easy to remember. Low K leads to alkalosis, right? Low K alkalosis. Just yes. And you're, you're losing the gut stuff, which is HCL. So you're losing H's yeah. and you're losing chlorides. So you're going to have to have alkalosis and um, hypochloremia. Yeah, so it's alkalosis. I may have said acidosis when I was reading. The question told you hypochloremic, hyperkalemic, metabolic acidosis. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, it was so wrong. Right. It was wrong in multiple. Yeah. yeah. Ways. <clears throat> That's right. This results as, uh, this occurs as a result of electrolyte losses from gastric outlet obstruction and repeated vomiting. Okay. Sounds good, Daphna. All right, buddy. See you, sun see you uh, Sunday for Journal Club. Sounds good. Take care. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.